You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Anarchaeologist Speaks. If you're a long-time listener, you'll know that I don't release as often as I should. And actually, a lot of the time, I should really need to get into better organizations and stuff. Yeah, I get better get into better, like, just organized and ready to kind of deal with terrible, terrible um, loss of time. I'm really bad with time, actually. <laughs> But that's okay because today we are going to talk about archaeology in the news. And this is a episode of The Anarchaeologist Speaks, which is a little bit of just me sitting back and talking about things to do with archaeology in the news and my viewpoint on them. Please, 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 please don't take this as kosher. Don't take this as the be-all and end-all uh be all and end all of all things archaeology because ultimately I can be wrong. I know that's quite difficult to fathom. So, first off, I want to say thank you to everybody for listening, and thank you to everyone who listens to the Archaeology Podcast Network. It is a lot of hard work, and uh, it's really, really nice to hear people are really enjoying it, and people are just, it makes it makes people happy, it, makes, it gets us likes on Facebook, I mean, it uh, gets us downloads, it's just, just absolutely amazing, and I really, really want to reach out and say thank you. Uh, to anybody who's interest, like who listens and is subscribed and everything like that. So, thank you so so much uh, for doing that. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that you know at the Archaeology Podcast Network, we're always looking for people to help us out doing this, that, and the other. You don't have to do a show every single week to be part of the team. Uh, we have places for people to do anything from marketing to helping us um, design new stuff. Uh, you know, help us produce the shows. I mean, the thing is, that a lot of shows they actually need a lot of work behind the scenes, and sometimes it's difficult. You know, when you're recording, just to have everything you know behind the scenes done as well and you know, there's a lot of stages from speaking to the microphone to having it uh, live. So always we're looking for people to help edit, to help produce, uh, just to help the machine grow. Um, so if you're interested, remember you can email either myself, Tristan at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, check us out on Facebook uh, and Twitter at ArcPodnet. So let's start off with some of the news this week. Obviously, there are some people who want to talk about. Um, obviously, there's this continuing story about Tutankhamun's tomb, and there's the secret thing that could be Nefertiti, but it might not be. And you know, to be absolutely honest, unless until we actually gain access and until we actually understand what was going on there, everything else is just speculation of the highest order, and it's 
funny that it's not just normal speculation. This is high-level speculation because ultimately this is what we want to hear. It's not really that important. So I, I honestly, 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 it's until we actually get some proper research done, it's still trying to be a news story without being a news story. So keep, you know, watch the space, but don't get dragged into this conversation of is it or isn't it? Because ultimately, we won't, we don't know yet. So um, there's some really, really interesting things that popped up recently, and of course, uh, what's interesting is uh, there was a lead object found in Israel. Now this is quite interesting because um, it's not just a chunk of lead. Well, to some people, it's just a chunk of lead, but um, some people actually think that it could be. Um, a sign of uh, something that's, you know, melted and formed into a shape. Now, what's quite interesting is it was um, it was found in a burial chamber in uh, Negrave's Ashalam Cave. And uh, it's about... It's nine inches long. Uh, it's a... <clears throat> sorry. The object is, n- is made up of a piece of wood that's nine inches long and a 1.4-inch piece of lead. Now, what's quite interesting is that these are materials that seem to me, uh, seem to be, uh, possibly have been imported. Now, that was the uh, the story I, the information I got, the source I got was from the archaeology.org website. If you want to check over it, um, uh, where I'm getting my some of my sources from, I'll try and source my stuff a little better because last time I didn't really say uh, where it was uh, grabbed from. So, if you want to check it out, archaeology.org. Um, of course, they do the archaeology magazine as well, which I wish I had money to subscribe to. <laughs> That's the thing, you know. It's like, oh yeah, I'd love to have uh, all these mu- these magazine subscriptions, but when you can get the information online, you know, you have to kind of wonder, oh, is it worth it, and all this. But uh, sorry, that's me rambling on for no good reason. Right, give me a second. So professional here. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. Oh yeah. Oh, love my coffee. Um, so yeah. <laughs> now, what, what's quite interesting is the stuff that gets chucked around on Facebook. Now, I recently saw. Um, obviously, Facebook is a way of people to interact over a wide uh, network, and sometimes the way things develop on Facebook and what people share kind of gives you a hint about what people are thinking about. And I'd like to kind of start talking about. Um, the focus on Europe's early, early, early history. Now, there have been a few stories coming out about uh, Europe's first, like, Europe's Bronze Age and before. One of the interesting stories uh, was shared uh, via Past Horizons, and um, the title is The First Intercultural Party in Europe. So basically, uh, it's about Bronze Age feasting celebrations bringing together different cultures and different communities. Now, it's actually quite really, it's very, very interesting. It's, um, so this site is in southern Italy. Uh, the site's called Rocca, and there seems to be evidence for a kind of cultural feasting party. Now, obviously, we find things like pottery fragments, and you know, there's lots of very, very interesting objects here. Um, and 
But what I think is interesting is the reason people are sharing this. You know, some people might say, oh, well, it's just an interesting story. It's something that's fascinating. But how about we look at it from another point of view? In the sense that, at the moment, people are trying to figure out uh, what it means to be European. Because, ultimately, right now... Europe has is facing a lot of issues, facing a lot of issues on a number of levels. If not, the most pressing issue is its economy. But I think the thing is that also there's an idea that European heritage or European identity is being attacked. And unfortunately, the people who are pushing for this kind of, oh, well, we need to find our identity, is typically right-wing extremists who kind of feel as if the world is no longer about them anymore. Um, But the thing is, there are questions about, um, ultimately, when did Europe start? I mean, obviously, you could say, well, Europe started, you know... um, you know, after, you know, like, we had, um, we've always, you know, we've always had the big countries in Europe always kind of work well with each other and, well, not so well in other cases. But ultimately, what it means to be European is being taken into question because we're being asked our moral opinions on things that are happening, uh, not in our own countries, but that we are affecting. I mean, you'd look at things to do with the Syrian refugees, and the Syrian refugees provide a way for people to try and figure out their own morality because ultimately people are um, worried about the other, the foreigner and people are kind of um, scared of things they don't know I mean, why are they coming over here? Why are they? Why don't they go somewhere else? You know, and wh- why are they even coming here? Uh, at the same time, there's this huge disconnect with people and politicians. And politicians are like, yeah, yeah, we've got a bomb, 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 bomb. And we're all okay. we're getting rid of ISIS and everything. And I think there's a very big disconnect between that kind of attitude and what people think uh, day-to-day is going on. And um, what it means, ultimately, is that people are trying to figure out where they stand. Now, some people say, hey, look, look at France. And look what happens when people, we lie Syrian refugees in oh yeah, they, you know, these ISIS people, or the Daesh, whatever you want to call them, come in, oh, they're coming in with the civilians, and it only takes one or two to do damage, and, you know, such and such. But other people from the other side are trying, instead, maybe not even consciously, to look at Europe's history as a way to actually say, hey, we've always had multiculturalism. You know, even back in the Bronze Age, we had people from different cultures coming together and, well, feasting together. And it almost sets it up in a way to kind of appeal to history. And that's why I'm interested in this. It's this appeal to history. And the appeal to history is basically how we use history and we use the history we create. Because ultimately what we say is either we say, look, we've done this for thousands of years and look how successful it is. We've never needed to upgrade it and it's given us a solid foundation. We know what's going to happen. The other argument to this is, well, history, look how far we've come. We've progressed through all these different stages and we've got to the place we are now because we are not the same uh, that we were in the past. And these are the two kind of sides of tradition and progressive thought that are fighting constantly. And I think when we kind of use history to kind of back up our side, uh, whatever side we fall on, and to let's be clear, there are ways in which you can be traditional in some aspe- in some uh, 
uh, ways of thinking and progressive in others. I mean, there's no value um, to either of them in reality because, I mean, I argue I'm an a-traditionalist because I like to be um, a little bit edgy. Yeah, no, not edgy. Um, what's the word? Special. I like to stand out. Yeah, sure. Whatever. No, um, I can see value in people having traditions, but to hold those traditions in such um, a sacred place is something that's damaging and dangerous because without being able to challenge something, that means that it it causes issues. I mean, this is what's great about the scientific method is, for example, things can be challenged with evidence. Nothing is sacred in science, or at least it shouldn't be. And uh, that can get me into conversations with some other people as well. Well, if nothing's sacred, then I can suggest anything. You have to take it on the same basis. You know, you have to take it at the same level. The funny thing is that when I say something's not sacred, I mean it should be challenged with you know, evidence or logic or a rationale that is developed not from a quick-witted witticism, but rather from a point-by-point, well-thought-out argument. And those arguments don't just magically appear in the air. They're not just there. They have to be thought through and they have to be developed. And when we look at how we should treat people nowadays, we should really be understanding that Syrian refugees that are coming over to this country are don't need the lessons of history for us to accept them. We don't need to say, well, you know, well, we've always been multicultural, of course we should accept them. Or we shouldn't be saying, hey, uh, look what happened in France, you know, this is what, what if one bad egg goes through with all of them? Well, that's one bag of eggs too many. The fact is that we, as the West, as a collective, as Europe and America, both as economic and political powerhouses, we are bombing Syria. And there's no way around that. The problem is the civilian death count in Syria should be zero. It should be zero because that's not what anybody wants. That is not the objective, that is not the target. But yet, we hear reports all the time about civilian casualties. Oh well, it's it's just a cost of war. Yeah, but it's not a cost that we actually discussed. It's, it's more like, oh, oops, I accidentally killed something. If you're interested, there's a great uh, debate that's, well... Uh, I'm obviously not a big Sam Harris fan, but Sam Harris makes the argument against Noam Chomsky. I mean, come on, Sam, you're a bit out of your depth. But um, he makes the argument. Sam Harris makes the argument that, well, look, when we go and bomb people, we're not trying to bomb uh, civilians or people who are innocent. Um, so that's better than us than some. Uh, if we were trying to bomb them, you know, it's the intent that matters, not whether we kill somebody or not. And I would disagree on many levels with that. I think intent is important, and uh, but I think it has to be coupled with what is the actual real-world effects of what you're doing, and is there a way to minimize that? So now with Britain saying that it wants to bomb Syria as well, it's finally time for me to say, you know what, I actually have a horse in this race, and I actually can talk about my complete uh, annoyance <laughs> that the UK is even going to bomb Syria. There are so many lessons from history. I will vote, invoke history now. I will invoke history 
Look at the past. Look at what bombing has done before. It's done nada. But even worse is that we have a target of zero civilians. Zero civilians dead. And I mean that not just in directly killing, but I also mean that in the environment we create that these people live in. I mean, just think about it. You are destroying the infrastructure. You're destroying their homes. You're destroying water and food. Yeah, you didn't hit them directly. But what you did was you took all their resources away. And what happens when somebody has left with nothing? Well, they have to go somewhere where there is something. Anyway, this has got very, very, very deeply political and very far away from archaeology. The final summation is history is how we tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. But we have to also investigate what that history actually means. And we have to be careful what we share on Facebook because sometimes we don't actually know whether, you know, who is sharing it and for what. Today's show is sponsored by Field Technologies Incorporated. Tired of illegible, crumpled, muddy paperwork? Field Technologies has proven software for recording shovel tests. Easy to use and priced affordably, Field Technologies software has helped many archaeologists just like you ditch inefficient paper forms. Schedule a free trial today at fieldtechnologiesinc.com. That's fieldtechnologiesinc.com. You do the digging, we'll do the paperwork. Now back to the show. Now, finally, I want to round up with something quite interesting. It's been talked about in this show before. It's 3D models. I had a conversation with Ike Yagaman, and I also have spoken to Sean Graham, um, particularly about 3D models. Today's news source is Science Daily, uh, with the headline, 3D models provide a credible stimulus to current archaeological thought and practice. Um... So basically the argument, well, I'll I'll open it with the headline and then discuss on further. Archaeological concepts, quote, Archaeological concepts such as real, virtual, and authentic are becoming increasingly unstable as a consequence of the archaeological artifacts and assemblages being digitized, reiterated, extended, and distributed through time and space as 3D printable entities. A paper recently published in Open Archaeology argues that additive manufacturing technologies, commonly known as 3D printing, have the potential to redefine the nature of archaeological entities in the digital. No, I, I think that's great. I think that's, that that we have a discussion about this is fantastic because ultimately it begins to unlock the potential of archaeology. It it basically presents people with an archaeology that is being actively created, not just theoretically actively created, but actually created by us. I think it's fantastic that we're finally putting theory into practice, as it were, because what we do when we copy and digitize these um these artifacts and reprint them i mean it's the same thing right guys you know um what's quite interesting is that ultimately we're getting to a question of authentic and real you know and uh, something that's authentic is obviously in eyes of many people worth much more than a replica or a copy but uh, there's a problem with replication through 3D printing. And the problem is that your copy will only be as good as your scan, and your scan will only be as good as the way you scan. And the things you scan in, the data that is processed, is ultimately going to limit um, 
your object. I mean, your object is almost has an infinite amount of variables because you could use any sort of measurement to, you know, you to compare compare it. I mean, look. It, Okay, so let's let's take a little dip into science. In science, you have standards. These standards allow you to compare two different objects. Now you say, well, my standard is length. So I'm going to measure these objects by length. Or I'm going to use the standard of pH. I'm going to use the standard of whatever it is. We use these standards so we can compare objects which may or may not usually be comparable. I mean, apples and oranges. We know that apples have... Um, a higher pH than oranges. Oranges obviously carry citric acid, which brings their pH down. I hope that's correct. Um, yeah. If you're a chemist and I've just talked absolute balls, please, please, please uh, email me and, and tell me I'm wrong or tweet me, Tristan's wrong. Hashtag Tristan's wrong uh, at an archaeologist. But in any case, when we use these standards to compare items that usually can't be compared, we are confining that object to that standard. We're saying that that object has only got that standard because that allows us to actually compare without having to go into the infinite amount of variables that each object has. You can almost think of it like you can hold a ball a thousand different ways, you know. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to. It has infinite number of sides or one side. But, you, you know, there's no, you can't hold it in a different way, you can hold it in, you know, a huge amount of ways. I'm sure somebody is going to mathematically prove me wrong on that one. But what I'm trying to say is that 3D printing is limited in itself uh, because it can't fully reproduce everything in the object yet. I'm sure at one point we will probably get to a point where we can replicate entirely the object. Now the other interesting, um, the other interesting thing is the kind of um, kind of thing that looting comes into this, obviously, and um, people make arguments about looting all the time. And I mean, I've talked about um, you know recording sites for prosperity before. I mean, I think that we should um, we should definitely be scanning everything you know and the more you know uh, we should be scanning things but that doesn't that's not done finished i mean we're evolving our technology all the time and we should get be getting to the point where we are scanning things a thousand times and each time we're getting more and more information i think that's that's where we should be but um yeah i think that's a really cool paper. The paper is... Doo -doo 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 -doo. So the uh, page itself is by De Gruyter. Uh, it's available in Science Daily. And the journal reference is Paul Riley's Additive Archaeology, an Alternative Framework for Recontextualizing Archaeological Entities. Open Archaeology, 2015. Oh, wow. I love references. I love references. No, it's really, really uh, interesting. And obviously, I'll be copying all the stuff below um, in the thing. Anyway, if you're interested in checking out more shows, there are some great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network. There is, of course, Mr. Soup uh, from Archaeo Soup, which is the YouTube channel of our archaeology. You should go, definitely go check that. Mr. Soup is very, very awesome, and he has uh, he's working in collaboration with us to bring some of those shows to you. 
Uh, there's also, of course, prehistories, and prehistories absolutely fantastic. It's talking about history, but in fiction. And how close do those things come? Or are we just, you know, writing our own versions of history into fiction? If you want to get in contact with us, remember you can always catch us on Twitter at ArcPodNet or you can contact me directly at an archaeologist. There are two email addresses, myself, Tristan, at Archaeology Podcast Network and Chris at Archaeology Podcast Network. In the meantime, I have, I am working on a new podcast with David Meyer. Now, David Meyer is a Canadian podcaster of no, of, oh, jeez, I keep forgetting this at No Borders Pod, or Podcasts Without Borders, uh, as well as many other uh, projects as well. And one of these projects is called Chronicles Unwritten. It is a choose-your-own-adventure podcast story, and yours truly is the narrator. So if you want to check that out, you can go and find it either on Stip... You can find it on Libsyn, and now you can find it on iTunes as well. So definitely go and check that out. That is Chronicles Unwritten. Anyway, I'm going to have to love you and leave you. I've got lots and lots of stuff to do. And uh, all the best, and keep listening. Thank you very much. presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.